Welcome to Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis. This is my official 100th episode. Yes, my friends, you've been with me for about two years now, and I'm exhausted. No, I love it, actually. And I hope you love it, too, because if you go back, I've really covered a lot of crime in Florida. Florida is not a good place, let me tell you. There's been everything from horrific rapes to civil rights problems to scary haunted houses to machete murders. I mean, it runs the gambit. So if you're listening for the first time today, I invite you to go back and, you know, dip into my other episodes because I think you will be not only entertained, but also informed. That's what I aim to do. So last week, I told you how convicted Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff preyed on the wealthy Palm Beach Jewish community with his massive Ponzi scheme that first began unraveling in December of 2008. And he needed like $7 billion to make redemption payments to his investors, and he only had like couple 200 300 million in the bank so according to an fbi report once madoff realized that he was not going to be able to pay off everything in december of 2008 he confided in his sons and his brother about the ponzi scheme so march 12 2009 madoff pled guilty to 11 federal felonies and admitted to turning his wealth management business into a massive ponzi scheme so that was a mess and now we have ponzi light a disbarred south florida lawyer convicted of operating a $1.2 billion fraud scheme. Currently, he's serving a 50-year sentence because in 2009, Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison, the maximum sentence allowed. So this Ponzi scheme light is just one-third of that. The guy's name is Scott Rothstein. He was an attorney. He's disbarred. And surprisingly, he was an intellect is an intellect, he's still alive, with an extraordinary singing voice. He should have just stuck with that. And he had a radiating, charismatic personality, like Bill Clinton. And he sucked people into his machinations of the most glamorous and talked-about law firm in South Florida, if not in the entire state. Of course, was located in Broward County, Fort Lauderdale to be exact. He is a mini Madoff. So... The scheme, not quite the same as Bernie Madoff's. The scheme was simple, though, but devilishly engineered to ensure secrecy and an air of exclusivity, which Madoff had as well. Now, Rothstein, whose known specialty was sex discrimination lawsuits, would escort a potential investor into his inner sanctum, his office, which required a trip through a private elevator disguised as an ordinary door, past a security-coded door, and then often under the watchful eye of an off-duty police officer who was standing guard, they would enter his office. And once inside, Rothstein would disclose that he had extracted a lucrative pre-litigation settlement from a client's former employer, showing redacted legal documents seemingly confirming the pitch, but they're heavily redacted. Ergo, there's no way to know. So Rothstein told the investor that the client was in need of money up front. It's my money. I need it now. So the investor was offered the opportunity to purchase the settlement often at a steep discount. Now, to prevent that investor from talking about the deal, Rothstein warned that if the facts of the case became knowledge, the settling company would go to court and stop the payments. So he's covered. Now, what separated Rothstein from other swindlers like Bernie Madoff 
he was more subtle than Rothstein. Rothstein advertised his conspicuous consumption with displays of wealth. I mean, it was just over-the-top luxury. It included 6,000 suits. I mean, good God. A lavish $1 million wedding at the Versace Mansion down on South Beach. Go ahead and listen to my The Day Fashion Died episode. It's all about the murder of Gianni Versace at the Versace Mansion on South Beach. And a collection of over 200 luxury timepieces. He loved watches. Well, now he's got nothing but time. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Sitting in prison. He also had at least four houses, a fleet of boats, a warehouse full of flashy cars that included a pair of $1.6 million Bugattis. Yeah. And he even outdid Donald Trump because he had his and hers golden toilets. I think that's what a golden toilet sounds like, Pleasure. Anyway, sorry about that. I love bathroom humor, in case you haven't noticed. Rothstein devoted equal attention to female companionship in addition to his second wife, Kim. He was spending fifty to about $60,000 a month on hookers, throwing cash at a seemingly endless supply of women. This included also putting women up in apartments, sending them to law school. Hey, I would like that ticket, but I just don't want to have to have sex with him. Financing international trips and even housing a stripper at the Fort Lauderdale Ritz Carlton. (laughs) Rostin also used his pension for always having women at his disposal, aided by the fact that he represented several local escort companies to entice potential investors through rumored sex parties and various condos that he kept throughout Fort Lauderdale. It just sounds like totally disgusting. These people have no moral compass. Zero. And Rothstein was very cozy with Fort Lauderdale law enforcement. He had off-duty cops as bodyguards, and he used scheme proceeds to corrupt many city officials, businessmen, and public businesses. He was widely suspected of having ties to organized crime, and, and he's currently being kept in the witness protection program after he helped the FBI wrap up a major corruption sting shortly after his scheme collapsed. But... It was widely believed that Rothstein's participation with federal authorities was aimed at securing a reduction in his 50-year prison sentence, which was denied in 2019. Today, Rothstein is 59 years old. He's disbarred former managing shareholder, chairman, chief executive officer of the now defunct Rothstein Rosenfeld Adler Law Firm in Fort Lauderdale. He was accused of funding an extravagant lifestyle with his $1.2 billion Ponzi scheme, which is like one-thirtieth of the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. But it was one of the largest in history. So can you say Rico? Rico. Not Rico Suave, just Rico. The RICO Act is a United States federal law that provides for extended criminal penalties and a civil cause of action for acts performed as part of an ongoing criminal organization. The RICO Act focuses specifically on racketeering and allows the leaders of a syndicate to be tried for their crimes they ordered others to do or assisted them in doing, like a mob hit, when you order someone to whack somebody, now because of RICO, you can be charged like John Gotti. 
So it closed a perceived loophole. For example, before RICO, a person who instructed someone else to murder or whack someone could be exempt from prosecution because they did not personally commit the crime. Now, the RICO predicate offenses include murder, kidnapping, extortion, arson, robbery, bribery, obstruction of justice, slavery, racketeering, gambling, money laundering, commission of murder for hire, and of course, acts of terrorism, and many other offenses covered under the Federal Criminal Code, Title 18. So around 1984, the Key West Police Department, located in Monroe County, Florida, down south, it's the furthest point south in the United States, was declared a criminal enterprise. The whole freaking Key West Police Department, under the federal RICO statute, was declared a criminal enterprise. And there was a lengthy United States Department of Justice investigation. Several high-ranking officers of the department, including the deputy police chief, Raymond Casamayor, were arrested on federal charges of running a protection racket for illegal cocaine smugglers. In the trial, a witness testified he routinely delivered bags of coke to the deputy chief's office at City Hall. And you remember Rudy Giuliani? Well, he used the RICO Act to bring down the mob especially John Gotti. He was convicted in 1992 under the RICO Act and later sentenced to life in prison. When Giuliani was prosecutor, he was a bad hombre. He amassed a record of 4,152 convictions and 25 reversals. That's a pretty good record. As a federal prosecutor, Giuliani was credited with bringing the perp walk, the parading of a suspect in front of a previously alerted media, into common use as a prosecutorial tool. Now the perp walk is used a lot by prosecutors. Now in the Mafia Commission trial, which ran from February 25th, 1985 through November 19th, 1986, Giuliani indicted 11 organized crime figures, including the heads of New York City's so-called five families under the RICO Act on charges, including extortion, labor racketeering, and murder for hire. Time Magazine called this the case of all cases, possibly the most significant assault on the infrastructure of organized crime since the high command of the Chicago Mafia was swept away in 1943. And they quoted Giuliani saying, our approach is to wipe out the five families. Well, as a result of him going after the mob, Giuliani himself became a target for a mob hit to be rubbed out, wiped out, whatever you want to say, whacked. According to Giuliani, the Sicilian Mafia offered $800,000 for his death during his first year as mayor of New York in 1994. Here's Michael Francesi, who says there were talks of a hit on Rudy Giuliani and Geraldo Rivera in this interview on Vlad TV. In Italy, they would kill cops and politicians and that type of thing, but that was frowned upon in America. But you said at one point you guys were actually considering killing Giuliani. The conversation was brought up, yes, and uh, was brought up by Persico. And um, there were two people that normally you'd, you'd have hands off on that I knew there was conversations about uh, taking them out. One was Giuliani, and the other was Geraldo Rivera. Um, he just wasn't liked on the street. And, uh, you know, there was talk about taking him out at one point. Now, I, mean, I told Geraldo this. Uh, he got scared when I told him, too, but um, it was later on, later on. But yeah, there was talk about taking Giuliani out. But as you know today, Giuliani is alive and well, with hair dye rolling down his cheeks. The RICO Act was also used in Tampa. In 2006, four members of the Gambino crime family were tried under the RICO statutes, found guilty, and sentenced to life in prison. So it's been used a lot 
especially here in Florida, and against Scott Rothstein. So in December of 2009, Rothstein turned himself into authorities and was subsequently arrested on charges related to the RICO Act. Now, although his arraignment plea was not guilty, he cooperated with the government and reversed his plea to guilty on five federal crimes on January 27, 2010. Rothstein was denied bond by the U.S. magistrate who ruled that due to his ability to forge documents, he was considered a flight risk, you think? So in June of 2010, Rothstein received that 50-year prison sentence, which he is still serving to this day. Now, his defunct law firm has 70 lawyers, 150 employees, offices in Boca Raton, West Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, Tallahassee, New York City, Caracas, Venezuela, and the firm focused on labor and employment matters, civil rights, intellectual property, internet law, corporate espionage, personal injury, wrongful death, commercial litigation, real estate, mergers and acquisitions, and governmental relations. So his client list included JCPenney, Ed Morse Automotive Group, I drive an Ed Morse Honda, National Beverage Wells Fargo, just to name a few, until he was permanently disbarred by the Florida Supreme Court, November 25th, 2009. I wonder if Rothstein actually came up with the idea for Wells Fargo to open up all those fake bank accounts to force customers into services they didn't need. The bank reached a $3 billion settlement with federal prosecutors and the Securities Exchange Commission after abusing customers. Sounds like Rothstein. And it really wasn't through his law firm that Rothstein stole money. He really stole millions of dollars from Ben investment side business. But there is an A-list of 259 persons or corporate entities that were entitled to the $279 million in restitution, which was sealed by the court. So we don't know who these people are. So in November of 2009, the FBI and United States Department of Treasury agents served a warrant on his law firm in Fort Lauderdale. And Rothstein had just asked the firm lawyers to investigate which countries refused to extradite criminal suspects to either the U.S. or Israel. And firm lawyers responded that Morocco is one such country. Aha! A red flag. Rothstein wired $16 million to an individual in Casablanca and left for Morocco October 26, 2009. It was Humphrey Bogart. He's looking at you, kid. We'll always have Paris. And then on the 31st of October, he sent a suicide text message to all of his law partners, which read, Sorry for letting you all down. I am a fool. I thought I could fix it, but I got trapped by my ego and refusal to fail. And now all I've accomplished is hurting the people I love. Take care of yourselves and please protect Kimmy. That was his wife. She knew nothing. Neither did she nor you deserve what I did. I hope God allows me to see you on the other side. Love, Scott. Apparently, the president of the law firm urged him to choose life. So Rothstein returned to Fort Lauderdale on a chartered jet. It was chartered by the ex-husband of Governor Charlie Crist's wife, Todd Rome, from Casablanca. And on November 2nd, his law firm, with only $117,000 in its operating account, asked a judge to dissolve the firm, accused him of misappropriating hundreds of millions of dollars from investor trust accounts into his Ponzi scheme from an investment business he covertly ran out of the law office. That's a no-no. 
Rothstein resided in the Federal Detention Center in Miami, in downtown Miami, but was later moved to an undisclosed location and his inmate number removed from the Federal Bureau of Prisons Inmate Locator website. Ooh. That's weird. Rothstein was born in the Bronx, moved with his parents to Lauder Hill, Florida as a teenager. He graduated from Nova Southeastern University in Broward and got his law degree there. And for about 15 years, he was relatively unknown. And then, in 2004, after getting his name on the wall of several law firms, his new firm became known simply as Rothstein Rosenfeld, with Adler being added in 2005. And one female in his law firm ended up murdered. And this is where this whole Ponzi scheme is unlike Madoff's because in Madoff's Ponzi scheme, people killed themselves. His son killed himself and investors who lost all their money killed themselves. Bernie and his wife threatened to kill themselves. We decided to kill ourselves because it was, it was so horrendous what was happening. We had terrible phone calls, hate mail. But in this case, there was an actual murder sort of associated with Rothstein's Ponzi scheme. So her name was Melissa Britt Lewis. She was murdered in March of 2008 and was with Rothstein's firm from the beginning. And she was friends with a woman who was getting a divorce and that woman's husband was jealous of their relationship. I'll get to the murder in a minute, but first... I wanted to tell you, also in 2008, Governor Charlie Crist appointed Rothstein as a member of the 4th District Court of Appeal Judicial Nominating Commission. It's a body that's responsible for selecting new judges for appointment to the court. He also invested in lots of property. He paid $1.2 million for an intracoastal waterfront house. Also in 2008, he purchased a $6.5 million waterfront gated Fort Lauderdale home and a $6 million condo in New York. And his personal office was opulent with security, compartmentalized layout. When you enter the suite of offices, you had to use an intercom. You could exit unseen through a second door. Also on his desk, four computer screens and five books of Moses. Outside his personal office hung a painting of Al Pacino as Michael Corleone in The Godfather. Jeez, kiss the ring. The walls of Rothstein's office and other hallways were lined with photos of himself, along with politicians including Governor Charlie Crist, former U.S. Senator Mel Martinez, Senator John McCain, Broward Sheriff Al Lamberti, Rudy Giuliani, Joe Lieberman, and Bill McCollum. Now, he had a Boeing 727 jet, and in 2002, he flew Bill Clinton, Kevin Spacey, and Chris Tucker to Africa on an anti-AIDS mission. He owned an 87-foot, $5 million yacht. In addition to that Bugatti I told you about, he also owned Ferraris, a Bentley, a silver Rolls Royce, and two 2010 Lamborghini Murcielagoses. I don't even know what that is. Worth about $400,000 each. I mean, just ridiculous, conspicuous consumption. And his watch collection was valued at over a million dollars. By the way, Roger Stone, political trickster for Richard Nixon, was a partner with Rothstein in the RRA consulting firm, which was set up to provide public affairs assistance to the RRA law firm's legal clients. And in the Stone Zone, Roger Stone wrote a column recommending Rothstein for the seat vacated by Senator Mel Martinez, calling him a man with a distinguished legal record. He's been a key supporter of Governor Crist and John McCain, and he has an unmatched record of philanthropic activities and would bring an unconventional style to getting things done in Washington. Add Rothstein to the shortlist. I don't think so. Thank you, Roger Stone. 
But in addition to being very well connected, Rothstein was also a giver. In 2008, he donated $2 million to the American Heart Association, Women in Distress, Alonzo Mourning's Charities. He's the former Miami Heat player. Here's Help and the Dan Marino Foundation, former Dolphins quarterback. He donated a lot of money to politicians of both parties. I mean, I just get mentally exhausted trying to keep up with these Ponzi schemers. They all seem to have so many balls in the air. I mean, I don't even know if they can keep everything straight. He said he was exhausted just trying to make sure the whole house of cards didn't fall down. And perhaps that's their downfall. Like the creepy porn lawyer, Michael Avenatti, the same thing happened to him. Everything just kind of collapsed. So his law partner, Debbie Viegas, handled his money. She was the law firm COO, chief operating officer. And she and Rothstein also co-owned several properties, including one on Castilla Isle. And in 2005, the year that the Ponzi scheme allegedly began, Viegas earned $80,000 a year. And in 2007, her salary had increased to $145,000 a year. And she received two Swiss watches, a Rolex, and a Britling, whatever that is, from her employer. Can you tell I don't have wealth? I can't pronounce any of these really extravagant things. I mean, when you're wealthy, you save your money so you can give it to your kids when you die. But when you're poor, you save your money so you can go out on Saturday night. Rothstein paid off her couch and bedroom set, held title to her two Honda water scooters. She was living in a half-million-dollar home in Weston that Rothstein signed over to her in 2009 for $100, writing love and affection on the deed. Viegas registered a 2009 $100,000 Maserati Gran Turismo at the home in January, and in November... Federal prosecutor seized the home, alleging it was among Rothstein's ill-gotten gains. While Viegas' estranged husband, Tony Viegas, was charged on circumstantial evidence in 2008 of murder in plantation of Melissa Britt Lewis. She was the partner in Rothstein's firm that I told you about. Although early reports wondered at whether or not the evidence was substantial enough, nine days later, forensic testing revealed that Tony's DNA was found on Melissa's suit, the same jacket that she wore on the day she died. Now, for a hot minute, of course, Scott Rothstein was considered a suspect, but then they ruled him out. But the jury found Tony Viegas, who was 52 at the time, guilty of first-degree murder of his ex-wife's best friend, Melissa Britt Lewis. And the trial only lasted about a week. And the jury deliberated for less than two hours before they reached their guilty verdict. Apparently, police said that Viegas blamed Lewis for the breakup of his marriage because she was friends with his soon-to-be ex-wife. Lewis was found dead in a plantation canal. Boy, we have a lot of that going on. Canals are a good place to dump a body, by the way. Her SUV was abandoned nearby. There were signs of a struggle in her garage. Prosecutors said that the DNA evidence and the electronic pings from Viegas' cell phone linked him to the murder scene. So, in the closing arguments, prosecutors noted that Lewis was best friends with Viegas' wife at the time of the murder and that Viegas had been jealous of their relationship. So according to prosecutors, Viegas' DNA was found 16 different times on the suit jacket that Lewis was wearing the night she was murdered. The judge noted that this was a very, quote-unquote, personal crime, with Viegas strangling Lewis to death with his bare hands. Her body was found near a pump station, strangled to death. Now, this is where it gets really sticky. Rothstein, the Ponzi schemer, and his slain employee, Melissa Lewis, had an affair when Lewis was a law student. This is according to Deborah Viegas. Now, the alleged affair, which Viegas revealed in a videotaped statement to plantation police, raised serious questions about Lewis's murder. In fact, apparently, 
Rothstein was having affairs with any students who came into the office. Now, I don't know if Deborah Viegas, Rothstein's COO, ever slept with him, but he did suck her into the Ponzi scheme, and she did have to plead guilty for her part in the scheme and did some jail time, which then put her on the radar with the police after her friend Melissa Lewis was killed. But after Rothstein's financial crimes came to light, many outsiders questioned whether or not Lewis was killed because she knew about the scheme. Some wondered if Tony Viegas was framed or hired to kill Lewis. But in her police interview, Viegas flatly denied that speculation. So Lewis's alleged affair with Rothstein began when she was a student at Nova Southeastern University. That's where Rothstein got his law degree. That was in 1999. He was also her professor. He was an adjunct professor there in law at Nova. And he hired her as a clerk at his then-fledgling firm. Rothstein was married at the time. Lewis was not. And over the years, Lewis worked her way up in the firm as an employment lawyer. Now, Lewis's family didn't know about the alleged affair. In fact, nobody knew it was something she was ashamed of. And there were three other people in the firm that Scott had relationships with. Viegas said it was the joke around the office that Scott had these relationships. You know what they say, don't or you eat. Although the affair had ended, Viegas says it's the reason Lewis briefly left the law firm at one point and went to work for another firm because the other attorneys were always talking about it and she felt uncomfortable. But that's not the explanation that Lewis's family gave for her brief exodus from the law firm. Her family said that Lewis couldn't stand Rothstein. She told her mom that she couldn't work for the SOB anymore and she meant Rothstein. But Lewis quickly returned to the Rothstein law firm, partly because her friend Deborah was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and they were very good friends. So she needed her. Deborah Viegas also told police that Lewis returned because she got over the embarrassment of her affair. She also wasn't happy at the other law firm. Apparently she didn't fit in there. And when she did return to the law firm, she was supervised by another partner, Stuart Rosenfeld, instead of Rothstein. And shortly before she was killed, she became partner at the firm. You know, it just seems to me, these lawyers, they know the ins and outs of the law. They know the ins and outs of the banking and financial world. And so they're able to come up with ways to screw the system and to screw other people and to screw their clients. And they think that they can do it and get away with it, but it always seems to come crashing down. And just when you thought I was done with South Florida Ponzi schemers, I want to tell you about Nevin Carey Shapiro. Nevin Shapiro, he was born in 1969, convicted felon who currently is in prison for orchestrating a $930 million Ponzi scheme, according to interviews. So he wasn't in the billions, he was only in the millions. But he engaged in rampant violations of NCAA rules over eight years as a booster for the University of Miami athletes. He screwed the U. Shapiro allegedly provided football players, cash goods, prostitutes, assorted favors, and purchased a yacht on which sex parties with prostitutes were held. Oh, boy. Shapiro was born in Brooklyn, New York, to a Jewish family. He moved with his family to Miami Beach, Florida at an early age, graduated from Miami Beach High School in 86. He's only five feet, five inches tall, but he was able to take down the U, let me tell you. He was a member of the school's basketball and wrestling teams at 5'5". Did you know that Tony Fauci, who was also very, very short, was the captain of his basketball team in high school as well? Now, ain't that a shot in the arm? Now, Shapiro subsequently started Capital Investments USA, which he claimed 
bought wholesale groceries and then shipped them to more expensive markets that never actually sold groceries, apparently. Shapiro's Ponzi scheme was based on attracting investors to capital investments. He promised investors they would make 10 to 26 percent commission every month. But according to the FBI, Shapiro directed others to create and show to investors documents fraudulently touting capital's profitability. Once again, just like Rothstein with the redacted settlement documents, they faked everything. So those documents included financial statements, profit and loss figures, fraudulently representing the capital's wholesale grocery business and generating tens of millions of dollars in annual sales. It's all a lie. It's all a, it's the big lie. According to the criminal complaint, Shapiro incurred millions of dollars in debts resulting from illegal gambling on sporting events, more than $400,000 for floor seats to the Miami Heat professional basketball team, $26,000 monthly for mortgage payments on his residence in Miami Beach, which was recently appraised at approximately $5.3 million. He also had $7,000 payments on a $1.5 million Riviera yacht, $5,000 monthly payments for lease on a Mercedes-Benz automobile. That must have been totally tricked out. And an undisclosed amount for a pair of diamond-studded handcuffs, which he gifted to a prominent professional athlete. Hmm, wonder who that was. Well, the FBI reported that he had diverted $35 million for his personal use from 2005 to 2009. And Shapiro allegedly rented his yacht to NBA stars Shaquille O'Neal. Dwayne Wade and Kevin Garnett and pledged 150000 to the University of Miami to have his name placed on the student lounge. Shaquille O'Neal is actually a police officer. He's been deputized by several sheriff and police departments around the country. The Diesel's a cop. Don't mess with Shaq. I don't think he did anything wrong, though, with Shapiro. So his scheme fell apart November 2009. Everything fell apart right at the same time. During the late 2000s, the recession, when Chicago real estate investor Sherwin Gerald sued him and forced him into involuntary bankruptcy after Shapiro had stopped making payments to his investors. More than 60 investors, largely from Naples, Indianapolis, and Chicago, filed claims. You see a common thread here? Eventually, Ponzi schemes collapse and it becomes time to pay the piper, which means, I guess, bear the consequences of an action or activity that one has enjoyed. (laughs) Thank you, dictionary.com. So in April of 2010, Shapiro was charged in New Jersey with securities fraud and money laundering. So he pled guilty before a U.S. district judge in New Jersey to one count of securities fraud and one count of money laundering. And on June 7, 2011, sentenced to 20 years in federal prison, was ordered to make $82 million in restitution. He's currently serving his time at FCI Jessup and is scheduled for release on November 9, 2027. That's right around the corner. But Shapiro's real crime came with what he did to the University of Miami football program, which has never recovered. In 2010, Shapiro told the Miami Herald that he was writing a book entitled The Real You, 2001 to 2010. That was during its heyday. Inside the eye of the hurricane, in which he promised to tell how Miami had violated NCAA rules affecting more than 100 players. And then he said once the players turned pro, they turned their back on him and it made him feel like a used friend. I never get sick of that. Shapiro was reported to have spent $2 million from 2002 to 2010 boosting Miami sports, primarily football, but also included contact with the basketball team under Frank Haith. Now, in 2002, he paid $1.5 million for 30% in a sports management company called Access Sports. The agency signed several hurricanes, including Vince Wilfork. 
And in 2011, in a jailhouse interview with Yahoo Sports, Shapiro made good on the promise for the revelations exposing a lack of NCAA-mandated institutional oversight at the university that apparently allowed his illegal and unethical behavior to continue unimpeded for years. So far, 72 athletes are alleged by Shapiro to have received impermissible benefits from him between 2002 and 2010. The players include Vince Wilfork, John Beeson, Antrell Roll, Devin Hester, Willis McGahee, and the late Sean Taylor. The school imposed significant penalties on itself, including the suspension of eight football players. It removed itself from postseason bowl contention for a year. In 2013, after two and a half years of investigation, the NCAA announced that the University of Miami football team would be docked three scholarships in each of its next three seasons, placed on a three-year probation, recruiting restrictions, a five-game suspension for the men's basketball coach. The U would never return to its heydays of the early 2000s when they won the Peach, Orange, Fiesta, and Rose Bowls. And in their most famous game in 1988, they wore camo before their game against Notre Dame, which was billed as the Catholics versus the convicts, and it was voted the greatest victory in Notre Dame Stadium history. You see, on the flight to the game, the entire Miami Hurricane team changed into military-style fatigues to play into the warfare element of the contest. Also, the game had been referred to as the duel in the desert. If you're going to wear army fatigues, you need to win the game. Just saying. Here's the call with CBS's Brent Musburger. CBS welcomes you to the biggest game so far of the 1988 college football season. Number one Miami and unbeaten Notre Dame. When you come to Notre Dame to play football, you dream of Saturday afternoons like this. Gorgeous weather, the Golden Dome sparkling in the background, sellout crowd at Notre Dame Stadium. And when you play football at Miami, these are the kind of games you can't wait to play. Inside the stadium, it's the toughest ticket in sport this weekend. All morning long, fans have been milling around outside Notre Dame Stadium. Actually, ever since last year when Miami beat Notre Dame 24 to nothing down in the Orange Bowl here in South Bend and throughout the Midwest, Notre Dame fans have been waiting for this rematch. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. I'm Brent Musburger. You really don't have to build this one up very much, do you? You know how high the stakes are. Miami, to win back-to-back -back national championships, needs this one. Notre Dame, to get back to the top, they have to beat the Hurricanes. You also know that there have been hostilities between these two schools, bad feelings. Uh, they feel Miami ran up the score. And, of course, Miami reacting angrily the way Jimmy Johnson's telephone number was published. Short time ago, the coaches meeting at midfield, shaking hands. We thought the hostility had died but then as the hurricanes were leaving the field an ugly few moments down there in the end zone pushing and shoving broke out there was some kicking police had to step in and finally the hurricanes were escorted back inside the locker room so I guess we can truthfully say as we get ready for this game these two teams still don't like each other and they still hate each other but the Canes decline helped to build Alabama's dynasty the low 
Tide. Thank you, Joe Namath. He lives right here in Palm Beach County. I'm telling you right now, Nick Saban runs a tight ship. There's no way he would let that kind of faulty raw fly at Bama. But talk about a Florida true crime. In 2003, in the Tostitos Fiesta Bowl, this is one I just could not get over. The Ohio State Buckeyes allegedly defeated the Miami Hurricanes by a score of 31 to 24 in double overtime. But the real true crime was the pass at the end of the first overtime, which was ruled incomplete by a side judge. And then a few seconds later, another official throws another yellow flag, initially signaling holding before changing the call to a pass interference call against Miami, giving Ohio State another chance to score, which they do. When asked why it took him so long to make the call, the official, Terry Porter, said he wanted to make sure that the call was correct, explaining, I replayed it in my mind. I wanted to make double sure that it was the right call. And the announcer, Dan Fouts, distinctly voiced, bad call, after the pass interference call was made. The other announcer, Keith Jackson, suggested that the call might have been correct. The ball goes into the end zone, and it is incomplete. Intended for Gamble. Now there is a penalty flag thrown. Randy Crystal. Yep. Oh, that's a tough call there. What about this angle? Bad call. Bad call. Well, he waved it incomplete and then threw the flag. Boy, Gamble had a chance to make the catch before contact was made by... Sharp. Trenzo sneaking touchdown. And despite being praised by referees, the call was generally criticized by fans and frequently appears on worst officiating calls ever lists. And that was back when the College Football National Championship trophy was the crystal football that was hollow inside, just like Ohio State's win. No, I'm not bitter. Now I root for the University of Alabama. And the trophy is indestructible. They had to get rid of the crystal football because apparently the football players would drop it and it would come crashing down like a Ponzi scheme. I mean, quarterback Tom Brady with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is still in hot water for getting drunk after winning the Super Bowl and throwing the Lombardi trophy from his boat to Rob Gronkowski's boat with the danger of it falling into the Hillsborough River, which it didn't lighten up. Well, that wraps up this episode of Full Rigor. Thank you so much for listening to my 100th episode. Much appreciated. And next week, my 101st episode will be about this lovely lady from Boynton Beach. Her name is Dahlia DiPolito. I just love saying her name. Dahlia DiPolito. She is the woman who was accused of hiring a hitman to kill her husband. And the whole thing was videotaped for the show Cops. And she got a mistrial in her first trial because the whole thing went viral after it was featured on the Cops television show. So it's really kind of an interesting story. You don't want to miss it. So again, thanks for joining me. And of course, don't forget to check me out on Instagram at Full Rigor Podcast. Like, download, subscribe, do all that good stuff. And we'll see you next week. Thanks again. Until next time. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.